about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept Him, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us? and not to the world. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you will be glad that I am going to the Father, to the Father who is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everybody. Let me add my welcome to Matt's. My name's Andrew Errington. I'm the senior minister here. Uh, And uh, again, uh, it's great to be with you even in this way. Uh, Can we pray again as we listen to those words and think about them together? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for these words you spoke to your disciples on the night before you died. Would you help us to put away the distractions and listen to them and focus on them, even in this anxious time? Turn our hearts towards you, we pray. Amen. One of the interesting and sometimes difficult things about the Christian faith is the way it doesn't quite meet the expectation a lot of people have 
that spirituality should be personally fulfilling. This expectation isn't always or even often made explicit, but you find it all over the place. You meet it in conversations with colleagues at work or with family or friends uh, when they try to avoid thinking about something you've said about church by saying something like, oh, that's great for you. I sometimes meet it uh, in other parents beside a sports field. I am at that stage of life, tragically. I can almost see the cogs turning in their mind as they process what I've just said, that I'm a Christian minister. And the way they often make sense of it is to think of my work as something like alternative medicine, something that belongs in the body, mind and spirit section of the bookshop. But Christian faith doesn't always meet those expectations very well. In fact, there are parts of Christianity that are not especially fulfilling. The Bible and sermons and church sometimes, sometimes will give us inspirational ideas and sentences, sometimes, but just as often they ask us to think about difficult things, hard things. Uh, in the second uh, week of Christian faith in a nutshell, the course I'm running to introduce and kind of outline the Christian faith, we had our second week this week, and this week the topics were God the Judge and Sin and Evil. Not exactly stuff for Oprah's book club. And the Christian life is full of practices that are not always that fulfilling. Prayer is not just meditation. Prayer is more likely to draw difficult things and concerns to your attention than it is to empty your mind. Church is also full of things that are quite confronting. Like, for example, when, when we share the Lord's Supper together, when we can, we pray that we might be able, by faith, to eat the flesh of Jesus. That's great for you. Really? Christian faith doesn't seem to meet our expectation that spirituality should be fulfilling, at least not in any straightforward sense. I want to invite you to think about this issue this evening. As we continue listening to Jesus' teaching on the night before he was arrested, the night he was arrested, under the shadow of the cross from John chapter 14. Because in this passage, what we see is Jesus teaching his disciples about what life on the way to the Father will be like for them and what it demands of them. He teaches them about the Christian spiritual life. And what we see is that while that life does bring fulfillment, it is not the fulfillment we expect. Did you hear Jesus say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. But then he adds, I do not give as the world gives. There is peace with Jesus, deep peace. But it is not quite the peace we are told we should get out of religion and spirituality. So come with me then as we look at this passage. I want to draw your attention to four things that we learn from Jesus in this passage about Christian spirituality, about the Christian life. Four things, each of which would look a bit awkward in the body, mind and spirit section. 
But then, in the second part of the sermon, I want to show you from the passage why the Christian life is like this and why it is well and truly worth it. Okay, so that's where we're heading. So then, let's begin with four slightly uncomfortable features of the Christian life. First, the Christian spiritual life is about a love for Jesus that is shown by obedience. Jesus says this three times. If you love me, keep my commands, verse 15. And then in verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then again in verses 23 and 24, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Jesus doesn't say things three times by accident. Obedience is not trendy. And it does not fit with our expectations of that our expectation that spirituality should just be fulfilling, should be kind of what we want out of life. Because obedience is, is giving up your autonomy. It is about handing over the reins to someone else. It, it's still a kind of freedom, by the way. We obey freely. Obedience is not about being forced, it's about freely choosing to obey. And yet we are allowing someone else to shape our choices and our decisions, our action. There's no pretending otherwise. Obedience means submitting to the authority of another. And that, says Jesus, is what love for him really will look like. He is not our servant, but our master. He does serve us, but he's not our servant, he's our master. He is not merely our spiritual therapist, waiting for our call, eager to help and offer assistance however he can. He's the king. And so our love for him must be the kind of love you can have for a king. That is a love that leads, obviously, to obedience. How does Jesus command us? How does he have authority over us. Well, he commands us, as he says here, through his teaching. In the first instance, Jesus was referring here to the commands he has just given, like his command to love one another. Just in the previous chapter, he says, this is my command, a new command, love one another. But his teaching extends more widely than this. To cut a very long story short, Jesus' teaching is the foundation of the whole New Testament. And the New Testament brings with it the authority of the Old Testament. And so Jesus' call to obey his teaching here invites us onto a path of obedience that relates to the whole of Scripture. Love for Jesus leads us to and fuels an attitude towards the Bible where we approach it determined to be obedient to the teaching of our King. That's not just self-fulfillment in any simple sense, is it? The second slightly uncomfortable feature of the Christian spiritual life we hear about in this passage is the promise of an awkward companion, the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you'll be a bit shocked by me describing the Holy Spirit as an awkward companion, but look at what Jesus says 
about the Spirit. Verse 15, have a look at it there. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then look down again to verse 25. All this I've spoken while still with you, says Jesus, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. This is the first time Jesus discusses the Holy Spirit in these chapters. He will say more soon, we'll come back to the Spirit quite a lot. But for now, just notice how Jesus introduces the Spirit. He calls the Spirit, in our version, an advocate to help you. An advocate to help you. Now that whole phrase is actually a translation of just one, Greek, one word in the Greek, the word parakleton. And it's, it's, it's a difficult one to translate because it has a, a real range of meaning. It can refer to someone who encourages and comforts, but it also can refer to somebody who prosecutes a legal case. And later in chapter 16, Jesus will talk about the Spirit prosecuting a case against the world. So the word has a range of meanings, and that's why our translation has tried to to capture it by saying an advocate to help you. Fundamentally, though, there is one thing that Jesus emphasizes, and that is that the Holy Spirit speaks the truth. Jesus calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth, and he stresses that he will remind the disciples of Jesus' words. You see, the Spirit's role is is not just to comfort us in whatever ways we would like to be comforted. It is not just to bring out our inner strengths and pat us on the back. No, the Spirit helps us, first and foremost, by telling us the truth. You know, people who always tell the truth can actually be a little bit awkward. So much of our life together depends on things tactfully left unsaid, verbal airbrushing to keep a smooth surface People who miss this, who can't quite keep up with it or don't really understand it, they sometimes shatter these fragile, polished surfaces we've worked so hard to keep intact. You know, this is the awkward but good blessing that some people with forms of autism sometimes give us. And the Holy Spirit is like that too, I think. The Spirit is a relentlessly truthful companion on our way, not at all impressed by or concerned with our daily niceties and polite deceptions. The Spirit tells the truth, sometimes gently, sometimes bluntly. And so the Christian spiritual life is is never a journey in which we are always flattered in which we can always present the best side of ourselves like a manicured Instagram profile. No, it's a journey in the company of the Spirit of Truth who will constantly put in our way people and experiences 
that will bring us back to the truth. If we begin to get that, you know, it will change the way we see a lot of things in the Christian life and a lot of people, especially, I think, people with various kinds of disability. We could say a lot more about that. I hope we do over time, but for now we have to move on. That's the second uncomfortable thing. Here's the third. In a third place, Jesus tells the disciples here, and he tells us through them, that what they are headed for is a relationship of profound intimacy with him and therefore with his Father. Listen to what he says in verse 20. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. And look again at verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. This is a beautiful promise of intimacy with God. You will be loved by me and by my Father, says Jesus. We will come and make our home with you. But make no mistake, this is deep intimacy and in no sense a casual relationship. There is no keeping Jesus and his Father at arm's length here. There is no comfortable distance. They are moving in. God wants to be your family, not your pen friend. Um, For those who've never heard of it, a pen friend was a person you used to write letters to. I don't think I ever had one, but I think my sister did. You know, it's, it's a metaphor for somebody who's at a fair distance. Okay, probably didn't need to slow down on that. Metaphor is still working. Listen to what Jesus says. You will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I find this language very beautiful and quite unsettling. It's beautiful because there is a promise here of a love that transcends anything we can give one another. To be loved, really loved, really known and seen and adored by God, your creator. And to be intimately loved by Jesus, the most perfect of people. That is something awesome in beauty. But it's also unsettling because it's so incredibly intense. It's someone moving into your home, your life, your family, your heart. Christianity is not a hobby. It's a relationship with Jesus and his Father that is more intimate than sex. Jesus does not just want to improve your life, to spiritually enhance your life. He wants to be your life. Well, the last slightly uncomfortable feature of the Christian life we see here is what Jesus says about our relationship with the world. The world in John's Gospel is an interesting thing. It basically means the human world that is all around us, 
uh, and that is mostly indifferent to God, but is sometimes actively hostile to him. Notice the things that Jesus says about the world here. In verse 17, he points out that the world cannot accept the Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world likes what it can see, what it can touch, what is easy to grasp, what it can know by its own resources. That's absolutely true of our world, isn't it? But the Spirit isn't like that. He's not easy to grasp and see like that. And so the Christian life, which, which just is life with the Holy Spirit, the Christian spiritual life, it's always going to bump up against the world and its expectations. In verse 22, we see this point worry one of the disciples, the other Judas. There were two Judases, uh, and this is not the one who betrayed Jesus. He is left already in chapter 13. But the other one says, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Why can't this just be public, clear, out in the open? Why do we have to be drawn into this position where we're at odds with the world? Jesus' answer to this question is not completely straightforward, and I wonder actually if Judas was a bit bamboozled by it at the time, but Jesus basically restates what he said about love for him and obedience and about the Holy Spirit. But he ends, if, if later on we'll, we'll look at this again, but he ends in verse 31 by saying that all of this is so that the world may learn something. The distinction between the disciples and the world is somehow part of God's mysterious plan. Now we'll come back to those verses again in a minute. For now though, I just want to stay with this basic point that Jesus says that a difference, a, a difficult, awkward difference will open up between the disciples and the world. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, I do not give as the world gives. And I think most of us, like Judas, would very much prefer it wasn't like this. Again, this is not what most people want from spirituality. We don't want spirituality to make things more difficult in the rest of our lives, with our jobs, our finances, with our neighbours. We don't want conflict. We want harmony, don't we? So why is it like this? And frankly, is it worth it? Well, in Jesus' last words in our passage, I think we get an answer to these questions. And I think it's a really good one. Have a look with me again from verse 28. You heard me say, says Jesus, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. These words show us two things that make all the difference. First, they show us that the Christian life is the way it is because it is about Jesus 
and not us. And second, they show us that Jesus is well and truly worth it. Firstly, these, sh- these words show us that the Christian life is about Jesus, not us. Notice the striking thing that Jesus says there. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. He tells the, dis- the disciples that they ought to be glad for him because he's going to the Father. If you loved me, you'd be glad. What an extraordinary thought that they might be, that we might be glad for Jesus. That he is with his Father. That he has ascended into the glory of the Father. Can you get to the point of feeling glad for Jesus, of rejoicing for him? To do so, I think, requires us to stop thinking about Jesus only in relation to ourselves. We have to stop thinking about Jesus only for the ways in which he enhances our lives. And that's why the Christian life is the way it is. Because it is about him, not just about us. We're obsessed with ourselves, aren't we? We're obsessed and just really preoccupied with our own happiness, our own choices, our own good. The way that Jesus invites us onto, though, is a path away from this self-preoccupation. Jesus invites us to come and look at him and to care about, to to care deeply about him and what happens to him. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. Rejoice and be glad. Even in this fairly rubbishy time, because our king is on the throne, things are well with him in the Father's love. Do you know, we'll be helped to get to that point, though. That's not an easy point to get to, I think. But we will be helped to get there, though, if, if, if we notice the second thing that these verses show, which is why Jesus really does deserve this love that turns away from ourselves to look at him. He deserves it because this is the love that he gave his Father for our salvation. Have a look with me again at verses 30 and 31. The last verses. I will not say much more to you, says Jesus, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus was no stranger to the path of love and obedience. That is why, that is what he gave his father, that love and obedience. Jesus did not die because he deserved it. He did not die because there was something wrong with him. No, the prince of this world is coming and, says Jesus, 
He has no hold over me. In the original, that phrase is, is literally, he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. There was not one place in Jesus, not one inch, not one thought, one feeling, one memory, one mistake, not one that belonged to the devil. Jesus could say what not one of us, none of us can say. That the devil had no foothold at all in him. Which is why he could lay down his life to save us. The perfect, sufficient sacrifice. The offering that broke the power of death and sin in this world together. And he did lay it down. He lay it down at the Father's command because he loved his Father. In the death of Jesus, the Son's love for the Father became the salvation of the world by his obedience. The devil is coming, said Jesus, but he's got nothing on me. I am doing as the Father has commanded me because I love him. It was perfect. He was perfect. And that is what makes the Christian life make sense, brothers and sisters. He is what makes it make sense. He makes obedience joy. He makes the truth a path of freedom. To be loved by him is worth all the world. Rejoice and be glad, friends. Even in this ordinary trying time. Rejoice and be glad for our king is on the throne. Things are well with him in the father's love. And because of that, because of that, they are well with us too. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.